welcome back to the Full Cast and Crew podcast. I'm going to be doing a, another follow-up episode this week. My last published episode was about the verdict with my repeat guest, Kier Graf, which was a fantastic episode. It's been flying off the shelves. Thank you so much for your support of the episode. And today, much like I did with my 22 glimpses of Jeff Spicoli follow-up to Fast Times at Ridgemont High, I'm going to be doing 41 glimpses of Paul Newman in The Verdict. I'm going to try to get through it pretty quickly, but since he's in almost every scene of the movie, I've made some excisions and selections of certain scenes that I won't necessarily go into in great detail just because some of them are exposition scenes, things that we don't really need to super get into. But anyway, let's start right away with the opening of the film, which, as you'll hear in the background, takes place in a bar. And Frank Galvin, our protagonist, is doing some day drinking and playing pinball. It's an otherwise credit-based scene where names of the actors and the stars and the top-line produce, uh, producers and directors and writers and all of that are, are listed. But there's a couple key moments for Newman's acting in here, which is the way he takes a sip of his beer, the way he smokes his cigarette, and two instances of a kind of vacant, where-did-it-all-go-wrong stare help to establish this character for us. And this is followed rapidly, this sense of being lost, this sense of being at loose ends and an awareness of same, but not quite enough awareness to break out of this self-imposed crisis of faith that we will come to experience from Frank Galvin in this moment right here is where we have this fade out to black. And then we, we go into um, another sequence of establishing shots where Galvin is peeling money and giving it to a funeral home operator. And then the first instance of one of Paul Newman's great contributions to the film, which are these little tricks of covering up someone's drinking. He sprays his mouth with binaca. Later, we're going to see that he uses eye drops, but he does this in order to cover the smell of the beer that we've just seen while he's trolling funeral homes for clients. This is what he's been reduced to. And in these scenes, we have another moment of dawning awareness when he's called out by a family member. Um, and... There's the amazing scene that Karen and I talked about, which is there's a newspaper with death notices. There's a shot of whiskey and a half-eaten glazed donut. And Frank Galvin tries to pick up the shot of whiskey. His hand shakes so much he kind of looks around the bar to see if anyone's looking. And then he kind of takes the top off the drink by leaning over. And this is another moment where we see what he's become register on his face after he picks up the shot glass and he's about to drink the whiskey. There's another prolonged, vacant look before he downs the shot. And then we're into the next scene where he gets called out by a family member for uh, ambulance chasing, basically. And this is this first comeuppance moment for Frank Galvin. Oh, uh, it's my car. 
the hell is that? I was a friend of your father's. You never knew my father. Get out of here. Who the hell do you think you are? Excuse me, Mrs. Cleary. Now, you know, imagine being reduced to making a scene at the funeral of bereaved people. Galvin is kicked out of the funeral home. He's caught in his sleaziness. Again, he has this look on his face. And he does the first of a couple moments where he does this thing with his thumbnail, which he holds up against one of his front teeth. It's a deliberate gesture that's repeated again a couple of times in the film when he's really at loose ends. And as he leaves the funeral home, he's on the streets and he heads down the street, but pointedly stops and looks across the street. And instead of heading on to wherever he was going, he crosses and heads to the bar. And this is establishing what we're dealing with here. And this life of the bar scene is so haunting and part of also what Newman yeah, everyone. Perfectly brings to this role. He's the king of the drunks. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Said, you mean to say there's a new bar and you go inside and for a half a buck they give you a beer or free lunch and they take you in the back room and they get you laid? I said, that's correct. He said, have you ever been in the bar? He said, no, but me sister has. Well, right here, Newman does an amazing thing. Hey. Oh, yeah, everyone. <clears throat> so what he does right there is He's in the bar. He's telling this joke to four or five guys. Now, he's the one who's in a top coat. He's wearing a suit and a tie. He looks good. But pointedly, the other bar flies are all sort of more working class looking people. They're wearing plaid shirts and uh, other sorts of tells in the costume design that I think indicate he's the king of the drunks. <laughs> and there's another great moment, and again, we're only five minutes into the film here, but the character establishment is so well done by Newman. He gets this lost look on his face after he tells the punchline and everyone else is laughing, but he's not laughing. It's another moment of, this is what I've become. This is the audience I'm playing to. And as we come to learn throughout the film, this character of Frank Galvin, you know, once occupied what supposedly is a lofty position in society. He had the job, he had the wife, and he lost all that through his own naivete and innocence, not his venality and corruption. And it's this dichotomy that David Mamet and Sidney Lumet and Paul Newman plumbed to great effect throughout the course of this film. And then the next scene is one of the most haunting depictions in the film. It's one of the most haunting depictions of alcoholism, I think, ever put on film. It's how drunk Galvin has to get in order to block out all of what I've just told you. And we now know that Galvin is a hollowed out shell. He's an alcoholic. He's a, a denizen of places where his so-called friends are simply fellow captives to the bottle, where his own play acting at being a member of the society he previously belonged to hangs onto him like this transparent mantle. 
these other drunks defer to him. He's the king of the drunks, but he's a king who knows that his own crown is made of tinfoil and cardboard. He has the worst inner awareness of them all. And the way he destroys his office is perfectly played. And he he can't do anything but but lash out at himself. And when it's over, Jack Warden's Mickey character finds him the next morning. And in the theme of Mammoth's screenplay, where Galvin will need, search for, and find faith and redemption, very pointedly, there's a cross on the wall in the background. Galvin's story is the arc of a man who had, then lost, then slowly regains his faith. And even as the act of regaining his faith proves the faithlessness of the institutions he once held dear, he himself is returned. And there's more great acting here in this confrontation scene with Jack Warden. You had a call from Sally Donahue. Who's that? When Newman sits down on this couch and, and Mickey gets him up on his feet here, Newman looks at Jack Warden's character and he's kind of like, okay, so let's hear it. He's waiting for what he knows is coming, which is someone is yet again being disappointed in him. I got these people to trust you. They're going to be here at noon, by the way. Look at this shit. This is another moment where Newman contributes something to the performance, which is his use of Visine eye drops and the very specific manner in which the character deploys them to cover up his bloodshot eyes. He puts the drops in and then he does this aggressive shake of his head forward, I guess, to throw the excess out rather than having it drip down his cheeks. Frankie, listen to me because I'm done fucking with you. And the look on Newman's face right here, I've never seen Paul Newman look like this in a film. Look around you. I mean, what's going to change? You think it's going to be any different next week, next month? He looks like a little boy. It's going to be the same goddamn thing. And this is part of, I think, what we've talked about before on the podcast, Newman's own self-described struggles with alcohol. And again, I don't want to be, you know... I don't want to be saying these things to, with you thinking I'm just making them up. These are sourced from Newman's own words and his own, his own recordings and his own interviews and discussions with friends about the impact that his alcoholism had on his life. And he brings all of that to this character of Frank Galvin. And it's, it's one of the more astonishing scenes that leads into another aspect of Newman's awareness, which is Galvin types a fake letter from a fake secretary so that he can head to the bar and not be seen sitting by himself without any employees when the clients come to visit him for the first time. Kieran, I talked about this on the podcast, and I think Kieran is very right. I was confused a bit by this scene at first, but basically what he's doing is he's creating the illusion that he has staff. And in showing up late and being surprised, quote unquote, that his client couldn't get into the office, he is he is a practiced practitioner of the art of alcoholic avoidance. And in 
parceling out these alcoholic tricks, the screenplay and Newman's performance is so brilliant. And what's brilliant is that in this first interaction... Hi, Frank Allen. Uh, why didn't you go in? It's locked. Locked? Oh, I'm sorry. God, I hope, it, I hope this didn't put you out. Let me see here. This is another bereaved person. He knows because he's just come from the hospital where he's seen the woman who's in a coma, her sister. But his first interaction with her, he's lying to her. It's it's not a good case. It's a very good case. A young, healthy woman goes into a hospital to deliver her third child and, well, it's just beyond comprehension. She's given the wrong anesthetic. You love her, Kevin, and me. I'm sure you do. What can we do? She don't know who's visiting her. I know I went. You saw her? Oh, yes. My sister? You know how. And that's such an evil moment from Galvin. You know, this idea that he's doing his part for her sister, for her, his client, when he's. (laughs) He was basically in a near suicidal alcoholic blackout the night before. Oh, yes, I went. I mean, just the way Newman says, oh, yes. It shows you the depth of the reality of feeling that Newman was able to achieve here. We talked about it in the episode that Newman said it wasn't until this film in his career, 1982, that he felt that he'd ever achieved truth in his acting. And that speaks to how, how much of himself he brought to this part. And there's a famous anecdote that Lumet tells Newman's compiler of all those interviews that were the basis of the Ethan Hawke docuseries. They're the basis of, of a book that's out now that has been released by the, at least the Newman estate in quotes. And Lumet gave an interview, I believe for that project, which was Newman's scrapped memoir, where he says that while they were rehearsing during the three week rehearsal that Lumet had for this film, um, he took Paul Newman aside and said, it's going to be up to you. There's something missing. And Paul said, oh, you know, I'm just not off book yet. And Newman said, no, that's, it's not that. It's that you have to make the choice. I can't make it for you. You have to make the choice of how much of yourself you're going to allow us to see in this role. And he says in this anecdote that when Newman came back the next day, it was all there. And I guess he had decided to be more inclusive of some of the things that perhaps he himself knew about drinking its impact on a person's entire worldview, things from the little tips and tricks like the visine and the, and the breath spray to the deflections, the, uh, the, 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 the pathetic sort of victimhood that Galvin displays elsewhere in the film. But that's normal procedure. You can check around. Okay. His name is Frank Galvin. And, you know, this is the scene where uh, Newman is not in this scene, but this is where you get some of the backstory of Galvin because now the James Mason law firm character and the archdiocese are finding out um, what there is to know about Galvin's backstory. And that's where uh, we are. That's where we are learning the elements of Galvin that come to inform the performance that we will see. 
And then there's a sequence where he sees uh, Dr. Gruber, who's his expert witness. And this is sort of an exposition scene that sets up just the fact that, you know, Newman is not in it for the right reasons. It's a scene where he again does the thing with his thumbnail and his tooth. You can watch for that. And basically, Dr. Gruber is laying out the fact of the horrible thing that really occurred in this case that Frank Galvin hasn't even really paid attention to. And the only thing he's seeing at this point are dollar signs. And that is backed up by the fact that he heads back to the bar and he has his first scene with Charlotte Rampling's Laura character, who's who's completely there only to ensnare and trap him, a trap he willingly walks right into. Um, and then it's this extraordinary scene on the phone where he is talking yes. I know you don't, but I to know the you sister. Don't. You're just following your own life. And you have a life to live too. You know, you have to go out west. You can't. Uh, not going to do yourself good here. I'm sure she knows that you care for her. The sound of the rocks glass here with the whiskey is incredible, as is the fact that he's doing everything in this scene except listening to her. And her side of the phone call, which we can just barely hear, is that this is such a huge deal for her to feel that someone is taking this case seriously. And he's leafing through a newspaper He's looking at his drink. He's circling numbers on a yellow legal pad of how much money he thinks he's going to get. And at one point, he actually t- he doesn't even listen to her. He takes the phone off of his ear and puts it on his shoulder while he takes a slug of the whiskey that is entombing him as a character. Well, you give him my respects, too. Not at all. You're a good man is over Galvin circling how much he thinks he can get. And it's just the one of the very few Johnny Mandel music cues comes in here as well, signaling to us that what he's saying is not what's going on, as we can see. It was a nice little bit of Newman business where he throws his pen on the legal pad. And I think in an unplanned manner, it rolls off and he gives a very Newman kind of, of course, that happened. And that leads us into one of the most pivotal scenes acting wise for Newman, which is when he visits Deborah Ann Kay in the hospital the second time. This is a scene that lasts maybe less than two minutes It's an entire character arc. He is there to take Polaroid snapshots of her comatose form in order to extract money from the archdiocese who runs the hospital that did this to her. So his his reason for being there in the first part of the scene is completely mercenary, and his jaunty sort of setting up with the Polaroid how he's going to capture her in her most damaging state is played accordingly. But after he takes the second snapshot, wordlessly on his face, we see the beginning of his journey towards redemption. And it starts with self-revulsion. 
he looks down at the camera. He looks at his hand holding the camera. And then Lumet brilliantly in a little bit of a movie within a movie cuts to the Polaroids themselves developing and the horror of what they depict. When we cut back to Galvin's face is the impetus for the character's change. As her body becomes visible in the frame, so too does the incredible contrast here between what Frank Galvin thought he was doing and in this small moment of clarity with what he's actually become. It's all in Newman's face wordlessly. And as an actor, he is in full and total command of the emotional resonance of this moment. And it's a moment where the, where the acting and the actor disappears. This is the kind of moment that Paul, I think, was referencing when he says this was the first time he felt his acting had arrived at a place of real emotional truth. And this very moment, wordlessly, this could be the moment he's talking about, which is, which is ironic. And the, the button on that scene is so haunting. I'm her attorney. Listen to the way he says that. Here. Listen to the way he says these words. I'm her attorney. God, just the, the hollowed out whiskey voice, the emotion in his voice, the idea that I am her attorney. I stand for her. I'm supposed to be representing her. And he realizes that up till this very moment, he's just been representing himself. And those three words, I'm her attorney, give voice to the entire arc that we just witnessed without words. He saw the truth of Deborah Ann, and it changes him. We witness that truth dawning upon Frank Galvin. And the very moment that he glimpses his own salvation lying prone, inert, unable to fight for herself on this shoddy hospital bed, and the reason that he's there is just to participate, he realizes in this moment, in the cover-up of what happened to her. And that leads into the next scene where he's in the archdiocese. Was maintain the position she holds in the community. And so great Eddie Bin's performance of the, of the bishop. On the one hand, our hospital and its reputation and so its effectiveness and that of two of its important doctors. And on the other hand, the rights of your client. As Keir pointed out here, this is one of the two scenes where Newman is sitting very defensively. He's holding his leather briefcase in front of him. He, as a actor in this scene, not as an actor as Paul Newman, but as someone participating in what's going on in this piece of theater, which is what this is. It's a piece of theater between a lawyer and the entity that he's suing. And the theater is... It's a generous offer, Mr. Galvin. Nothing can begin to make that woman well, but we could at least try to compensate Make a gesture. The theater is that they're both participating in this charade. And the great cutaway How here is when on the, amount? the bishop's acolyte hands Frank Galvin just... the check. Galvin takes it and his hands are shaking, which is further underscoring his alcoholism. Because it struck me um, <clears throat> how neatly 
three went into this figure, uh, 210,000. That means I would keep 70. That was our uh, insurance company's recommendation. Yes, that would be. Now, you know, of course, it's the big speech that everyone remembers when we remember this Newman performance, but scenes like this to me are so imp- so underappreciated for the caliber of acting that's going on here because it's expository in one way. It's explaining to us that this stop of the journey is not going to be the resolution that the character previously just one, two scenes ago was circling on his yellow pad. He has the, the number squarely in the middle of what he was circling that he would take to settle the case. But, but Newman's embodiment she here. She has no home, no family. She's tied to a machine. She has no friends. And the people who should care for her are doctors. And you and me. have been bought off to look the other way. We've been paid to look the other way. This is also an example where I check the screenplay when these things happen because I became fascinated. There's a few moments where Newman repeats a line and he always does it to great effect. And this is one of them. So he slightly tweaks it here. He says it, you know, two different ways that we've been paid to look the other way. I've been bought off to look the other way. We've been paid to look the other way. Now that's not in the screenplay twice. So this is a Newman acting choice and he does it again at least one or two other times. And again, in this otherwise expository scene here, I just think there's such emotional resonance because Galvin is speaking the truth here. This is the truth of what's going on. Not to belabor the movie within a movie point, but he's participating in a movie here. Frank Galvin is participating in a little dance that they both are aware what they're supposed to do in air quotes. They're supposed to argue over the amount of money and settle and shake hands and clap each other on the back and have a glass of sherry in these bullshit thin glasses that the bishop's acolyte is pouring. And they're supposed to go on about their business. And Frank Galvin isn't going to do that. And even when he's pressed uh, by the acolyte who sort of says, Are you you sure you want to pass this up? I mean, what about your law practice? After Galvin reaches into his briefcase. Brought snapshots to show you so I could get your money. You know, the snapshots don't represent what they represented when he was first taking them. Because if I take the money, I'm lost. I'll just be a... Rich, ambulance chaser. I can't do it, I can't take it. We may discuss money, Mr. Galvin. How's your law practice? Not too good. 
got the one client. <laughs> I love that button. This shows a flinty awareness that Frank Galvin has of exactly what he's working with here, which is not months, not much. And, and also his awareness of the sense that the less the odds are in his favor, the more it's actually his one shot at redemption moment in his life. And this is a pivot that Newman makes perfectly in this scene. And the screenplay is so intricately about the power of these institutions and what they're supposed to stand for with a very cynical, sardonic eye towards what they really stand for. You just heard Frank Galvin's character tell a bishop, someone who is supposed to be in the business of saving souls. Frank Galvin's character, even though they're involved in litigation against each other, has just said to him, if I do this, I will be lost. I will be a lost soul. And Eddie Benz, who's playing the bishop, does a great job of threading a very thin needle through the film. You know, he's not an evil person as represented in this screenplay and in its, uh, in the way that the character is brought to life by the actor. He's shown throughout the film to be aware of what's in the balance, but also not necessarily avoiding the truth of the matter. It comes back at the end of the film where he says to uh, the insurance company lawyers played to smarmy perfection after the Lindsay Krauss document revelation moment on the stand late in the trial. He says, yes, but did you believe her? And the lawyer doesn't answer because the unspoken word is, of course, he believed her. She was so believable. And there's a look of disgust on Eddie Bin's face as he says that. And the next scene is when Newman goes back to Mickey, uh, which is, you know, played by the great Jack Warden. And he needs his help. And what's great about this scene is there's a funny moment where I just always love the idea, like they're walking through the what's supposed to be the courtroom hallway as Newman, basically as Jack Warden is berating Frank Galvin for not taking the money. He can't believe he didn't take the money. Are you out of your mind? I need your help. You need my help? You need a goddamn keeper. Are you telling me you turned down 210 grand? Huh? What are you, nuts? What are you going to do, bring her back to life? I'm going to help her. To do what? To do what, for Christ's sake? Help her to do what? She's dead. They killed her. Trying to buy it. That's the fucking point, dummy. Let them buy it. No, we let them buy the case. That's why I took it. Now, look, you just dropped this. You understand? We'll go up to, go up to New Hampshire. We'll oh, kill Mick. some fucking oh, Mick, here. Mick, Mick, Mick. You said, no, listen to me. You said, if not now, when? I know what I said, but not now, all right? Yeah, I'll tell you something else. I can win it. I can win this case. Now, this is one of the first deployments, and we use this term in the podcast a couple times when talking about this film. This is one of the few places where Sidney Lumet and Paul Newman are deploying the famous baby blue eyes because there's a close-up of Newman and his face for the first time, his eyes are clear. He is filled with the vigor of his mission of redemption, which we will see is actually at this point still fairly shallow. It's still totally about him. It's not really about Deborah Ann Kay lying in the hospital bed in a coma. He thinks it is. That's part of the genius, I think, of 
the construction here of the film. We will come to see later that Galvin is selfishly interested in his own salvation more than he's really interested in what happened to Deborah Ann Kay at the hands of these doctors. It's almost as if winning the case is incidental to his own journey of faith rediscovery, which is an interesting layer that's played here by these, by these actors. And the first part of the scene is largely, again, expositional to establish that, um, you know, he, the Galvin character has, has turned down this settlement and, you know, he's begging for Mickey's help. And then we get to see the, the discrepancy in the next couple scenes between the way the two law firms are handling the preparation here. And Jack Warden has all the best lines in the scene, so I'm not going to belabor this one. I just wanted to mention, I love the fact that for some reason when they're walking and talking, Sidney Lumet stages this where a water delivery guy crosses awkwardly in front of their path and it makes he makes them kind of go around. I would love to have heard him talk about why he chose to do that. I, I just think it's, I don't know, is it is it part of uh, real working people going about their lives and their business while the the business of the rest of us is settled by those accredited to settle the scores? Is it part of that kind of idea, which is definitely laden throughout the film here, where you have a class kind of warfare thing that Mehmet is so specifically discussing and then setting up as we then go into Kincannon's law firm and it's just magisterial splendor. And then when you have the scene of Newman and Jack Warden in their law library, just the two of them. And I think this is also indicating that, you know, Frank was once a great lawyer and that's demonstrated by his case, was given the wrong case recall here as they start going through cases. And it kind of shows both that he and the Mickey character here, played by Jack Warden, have a history because he sort of, you know, he says, oh, you got a good memory. He says, I had a good teacher. And it's just, again, a little bit more of this handling out of the backstory of, of Galvin's history as a lawyer. Right. DZ versus electric boat. Hey, you got a good memory, Frankie. I had a good teacher. McLean versus uh, urban transport. Right. And then they're back to the bar for a celebratory drink. And this is the second seduction scene with Charlotte Rampling. And this is the, the first major deployment of the Newman charm in air quotes. As Frank Galvin and Laura occupy a booth and have dinner in this rundown but beautifully lit and photographed bar by Andre Bartkowiak, whose chiaroscuro lighting is discussed by Sidney Lumet in the commentary track that they were looking through uh, a Rizzoli book collection of paintings done in the chiaroscuro manner where one section is clear and one section is obscure, literally clear, chiaro, and obscure, oscuro, I guess. I don't know Italian, but um, that's how these scenes are photographed. And as Newman gets into this incredible uh, dinner moment with Rampling, we have these handsome close-ups of Newman, twinkle in his eye, they're flirting, his charming nature, as, as Lumet says, 
uh, is, is on full command and full display here. And he never looks better in the film than he does in this sequence. The weak have got to have somebody to fight for. Ain't that the truth? Want another drink? Yeah. Jimmy! Yeah. See, that's why the court exists. The court doesn't exist to give him justice. The court exists to give him a chance at justice. Are they going to get it? They might. They might. Now, what's fascinating in this scene, in addition to its brilliant construction and its filming and its editing, and the two performances of the lead actors here who are going toe-to-toe, is... I'm impressed throughout the film in so many places where the balance of the scene is allowed to take place on the other character's face. In this scene, the important thing that's happening is the impact that this speech by Frank Galvin about the week and his process of approaching this case. The real story is what's happening on Laura's face, Charlotte Rampling's face, as he tells this story. Because as we will come to find out, but don't yet know, her character is engaged in some treasonous behavior. And because of the genius of Charlotte Rampling as an actor in using her face to convey this emotional pain, that's what's going on here. And there's a fascinating little tell right here. So I'm going to try to do Where she's... She's teasing out what he's going to do so she can report back to James Mason's Concanon character. And as she asks him, is that what you're going to do? Her fingers are walking across her plate to cross the line into Frank Galvin's area, and then she retreats them. I think that's a fascinating little tell. And then the next scene when they are in Frank Galvin's sad little apartment, um... There's a, just a, a fantastic moment where the the fact that in the book, you know, she's as much of an alcoholic as Frank Galvin. Uh, it doesn't really come into play here so much except her enthusiasm for accepting drinks from the Frank Galvin character, from the Mickey character. The answer to do you want a drink is always yes for, for Laura. And in here, Galvin makes them, again, this use of whiskey glasses with ice. And as they kiss, you hear that sound because they are literally embraced by each other's arms holding their whiskey glasses. And it's a subtle nod, I think, to the origins in in the book and in the screenplay where both of these characters have battles with alcohol that cause them to do the things that they do. And as Lumet mentioned in his commentary track, and as Kier briefly mentioned in our episode, when Lumet was depressed, he used games like pinball to decide how his day would go. And that's what the Galvin character does. He goes back to the barn, and this time, instead of the vacant stairs, we have the pinball wizard, um, and he's late, of course. Again, he's, he's, still, he's still trapped, I think, in some of his old behaviors. 
So he's not on time for this pivotal meeting with the judge and with Kincannon. He's late. Listen to this great little line as he walks in the room from Milo O'Shea playing the judge. I met him at the club the other night. I met him at the club the other night. That's such a small, subtle way to establish that there's a club and Galvin isn't in it. I know, I'm sorry. Why is that? I, uh, I just got held up. I just got held up. So he doesn't have an answer. I, uh, Frank Galvin, we've met before. And we've met before. Ken Cannon pointedly either oh. doesn't remember or pretends not That's to remember. And Newman does a great little bit of physical acting here with his coat. No one, no one is helping him to... Uh, <laughs> to hang his coat anywhere. No bargain ever was completed, other than quickly when both parties... Another thing I love in the scene, if you watch it, these little coffee flagons that the judge, played by Milo O'Shea, has on his breakfast tray, they will remind you totally of the very early 80s. These little pot-like coffee service things with these black ribbed tops are just so hilariously something that you'll remember from back in the day. And... What's interesting in this scene for Galvin is on his journey here, he has to display a false bravado in the scene that he doesn't really contain. So he says in the scene, after he resists the cajoling of the judge representing the system, basically saying, are you crazy, man? Why aren't you taking the money and running? I myself would take it and run like a thief. And Galvin says, oh, I bet you would. And he resists all of this with a false bravado he doesn't really feel when he says, we're going to try the case. And we know that he doesn't feel it because when Milo O'Shea and James Mason leave the office, Newman is diminished, Galvin is diminished by the camera, which now, as I mentioned in the main episode, is back behind the judge's desk looking down at Galvin. This is, this is part of Lumet's great use of the sets that he built in order to indicate what he is putting his main character through. So Galvin here is on the other side of the, the judge's desk, pointedly. The desk is littered with the remains of the judge's half-eaten breakfast. The judge doesn't even need to finish this food, nor does he need to clean it up or bus his tray. Someone else is going to do that. They leave Galvin. He's of such little consequence to them that they can just leave him in the judge's chambers. And, and as he's sitting there, dum, 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 dum. he says, dum, 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 dum. And this is another great little bit of acting by Newman in the jury selection Mr. scene. Abraham? Abrams. Mr. Abrams, how are you? I'm fine. Ah. Have you ever been a patient in St. Catherine Labre Hospital? Me? I'm Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's played for a laugh, but pointedly, the way this scene is framed... Behind Newman, not only is his own co-counsel watching on, Jack Warden, with interest, how's he going to do? It's been a while for Frank, but Kincannon and the doctors are also in the background over Galvin's right shoulder, and they're watching him flail here. He doesn't know how to pronounce the juror's name. He doesn't know that the juror is Jewish and would never be in a Catholic hospital. Newman is playing off the back foot here. He has to tamp down his general alphaness. As, a, as an actor, and 
play someone who's not quite comfortable yet, and he does it quite well. Have you ever been a patient in a hospital? Yes. Well, how do they treat you? I don't know what you mean. Been a long time, huh? I'll get it back. Don't worry about me. So, you know, here's part of... This is our, this is our downtrodden... Uh, <laughs> this is our downtrodden protagonist before he, he really, um, you know, gets his stride back. And that leads into one of the other kind of pivotal moments here. See you at the office tomorrow. We're doing fine. Hey, Galvin. Well, this moment here is another Paul Newman thing. Paul Newman does this little move in real life where he, he winks his eye and he makes a little shooter, shooter gesture with his hand. And he's caught in this moment by his client who is confronting him. Who do, who do you think you are? And what's brilliant about the way this scene is staged, and I just noticed this in prepping for this episode, basically what Galvin has done here is violate his obligation to his own client because he never passed along the concept of the $210,000 settlement offer. He just rejected it himself and never told the clients. Well, the archdiocese playing dirty called up the clients and let them know that their lawyer passed on this settlement offer, setting off this confrontation between the brilliantly portrayed blue-collar husband of the sister of Deborah Ann Kay, the comatose patient, who is pointedly in this scruffy leather jacket working man outfit. And Galvin is obviously coming out of his court mode. He's wearing his suit. But what's brilliant about the way the scene is staged is that Galvin's overcoat is half on as this scene plays out. It's as if half of the Galvin character is where he should be or is heading in the right direction. The half that maybe is represented by the coat being half on or half off. I'm not sure which is supposed to, is it, is he shedding the overcoat of obfuscation that hangs over his life and career? Or is he putting on the coat of respectability as he fumbles his way towards salvation? But either way, he hasn't quite achieved salvation yet because he's lying to his clients still. And he's unaware in a way that he screwed this up because he just is full of defensive, uh, defensive reactions here. I can have you the spot. I am going to have your ticket. Do you know what you did? I said, do you know what you did? No, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. okay. You ruined my life, mister. Me and my wife. And now I'm going to ruin yours. You don't have to go out there to see that girl. We've been going for four years now. See, four years. My wife has been crying herself to sleep. What they did to her sister. Now I'm playing his dialogue because... I wouldn't turn down the offer. What's happening on Newman's face as he hears these things is is what's fascinating. I am a working man and I am trying to get my wife out of town. Now we hired you and I am paying you. And I gotta find out from the other side that they offered two hundred thousand dollars. I'm gonna win this. 
I'm going to the jury with a solid case. I got a, I got a famous doctor for an expert witness. You're going to get, what, five, six times what <laughs> And here's the central thesis of the film. This line right here coming up. You guys are all the same. The doctor's at the hospital. You, it's always what I'm going to do for you. And then you screw up, and it's, uh, we did the best that we could. I'm dreadfully sorry. That's the central tenet of the whole film for David Mamet. It's, it's repeated by the Julie Bavasso nurse character later in the film. You guys are all the same. And again, what's happening on Newman's face here? It's part of the Galvin journey, but he doesn't quite get it yet. And again, just watch it for the overcoat half on, half off. I love it. Um, he's only halfway back. He didn't finesse his clients into agreeing. He violated his duty. Um, but as he sees it, his duty at this point is to some greater truth, which is a selfish truth at the moment. And this heads into some of the best sort of panicked acting uh, that Newman gets to do here. And I, I just, I learned so much about how an actor could portray abject fear and panic through use of his voice and his breathing because as he figures out that his famous witness who he just defended himself to his client with has skipped town being found out by Kincannon what is it? Dr. Gruber Dr. Gruber's not in I had an appointment at his office uh, I must have got it wrong I mean we had a meeting he's not in sir And again, Johnny Mandel's great subtle, there's not much music in the film, but where it is, it always underscores Galvin's losing the thread. He's taking two steps forward and then he's he's just taken his second step back. The first step is being called out onto the carpet or the tiles of the judicial complex by his client. And the the second step back is his expert witness. has disappeared, has been spirited away by Kim Cannon to an island, and he's reduced to now begging for forgiveness from the judge, and the way they frame this is so great. It almost looks like he's going to see Benjamin Franklin. Milo O'Shea is wearing these tiny glasses. He's in this uh, very colonial, wallpapered home with an oil painting. The light is coming from below Newman so that Galvin's face is sort of spotlit. It's very 18th century feeling. What is it? I need an extension on my case. He knows it's over before he even asks. You should have taken the rougher. Especially if you're unprepared. I had a witness disappear on me. Well, that happens. I could subpoena him if I had a week. I don't have a week. This case should never... So Galvin was sitting pretty, and now he is in deep shit and getting deeper in, by the way. And so uh, this is part of what's genius about Mamet's screenplay is he never... Uh, uh, yes, well, listen to I this. Have to reach this is an emergency. Would you please give me his home number? I'm sorry, you're not allowed. What? Well, could you uh, could you call him? Yes, and have him call me then. I can't guarantee that. Uh, yes. Oh no, no. I understand. I understand. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, name is Frank Galvin. Now listen to the obsequiousness. A L V I N. 
and I will be at the following number in about a half an hour. Jimmy, he, he's so he's so scrambling, and this is just something that Newman again does particularly well through the use of his breathing and kind of this cold that he creates. And as we get back to his office, there's another, if you look for it, it's another bit of this fingernail moment. And as the phone rings from the, he, the panicked phone call he just made was to the insurance company lawyer. And he rushes to the phone, but he then stops so as not to appear as desperate as he actually is. But listen to the way his voice indicates how desperate he really is. Hello? Oh, yeah. Thanks for calling. <laughs> Frank Galvin. Uh, I'm representing Deborah Ann Kay. Well, uh, I'd like to discuss your firm's offer uh, of that 210 uh, well, in the sense that, uh, well, we'd like to accept it. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, well, it came as something of a shock to me, too, but uh, it is my client's wishes, and um, uh, she changed her mind as of tonight, and, uh, of course, I tried to dissuade her. Uh-huh. Well, uh-huh. On, on the eve of the trial... Uh, well, you understand. I think she just came down with a terrible case of the jitters. Now watch uh, the shift here from obsequious that arrived at? begging to anger. Well, I know what Ken Cannon said, but uh, I think you guys are making a big mistake. I think you ought to reconsider. I think you ought to get the principles back together again. <laughs> and he wipes his nose brilliantly. It's just the use of acting to undercut what the character is saying. The strength of the sentence over the phone is one thing, but Newman wipes his runny nose with his hand as a button to that line, which shows what's really going on. My God, man, that's acting. Okay. No, no. That false end. Okay. I understand. That's fine. I was really sorry to bother you at home. I mean, just the command of the different timbers and tenors of his voice. And also, again, in this scene, when you watch it, it's another brilliant use of Lumet's use of sets because the camera is positioned essentially in a place where the tripod and the accoutrement of the camera would be below the floor. So they built the set up on stilts so that the camera can be above floor level but somewhere that it wouldn't naturally be in the space. And it's filming into the corner. And as Lumet says in the commentary track, there's half of a window. Because in, their, in the genius thought that they had on the set design, it was that this grand building had hit hard times. And where once maybe they'd had a 20-foot ceiling on a grand floor, they've split that into two floors. So you have half of a window and a 10-foot ceiling as opposed to a 20-foot ceiling, and that's where the Galvin Law Offices are. And again, it's the use of the set to give you this angle that you wouldn't have in real life in a real location that fits so perfectly with the theater that's going on for Frank Galvin in his panicked phone calls. And also this introduction of his panic attack. And all the while, Mickey is just standing there. 
Jack Warden is just standing there, observing this train wreck in progress. See if there's somebody on this list to replace. And he has to make a phone call to try and replace the doctor. And he can listen here in the phone call too. It's just, it's, it's the, he, he, he also pours himself a, a shot of whiskey and Mickey looks as if to say seriously. And just the way that Newman unscrews that cap and the way he rattles the bottle on the glass, genius. And he gives Mickey a look like, what do you want me to do? This is uh, what I do. Dr. Thompson, he's the nearest. And here's another genius, again, my favorite thing, one-sided phone calls. Newman is the master of these, and he's about to make another brilliant one-sided panicked phone call here. Shout out to the days when we had to wait for seven numbers to be dialed as well. Listen to him here. Dr. Thompson. Yeah, Frank Alvin, representing Deborah Ann Kay. We had some correspondence some time ago. 18 months ago. Uh, well, I'm sorry I didn't get back to you, but the case got postponed. I had to reorganize my staff. I'm sorry to call you so late. Well, we've had a train change of strategy. Right there. We've had a train a, a change of strategy. These bobbles are intentional. These are intentional in the script and in the performance, in the breathing. And it's just so masterful. It's like... There's so much information being conveyed. Uh, I was just wondering if you could, on, well, this kind of short notice at any rate. Uh, <laughs> just the groveling, the, the, the abject panic that we experience through Frank Galvin is just such a brilliant part of his, his journey. And this is a this is a wonderful bit of sort of Boston 1978, you know, acting where he doesn't know that his replacement expert witness is a black doctor. And he's waiting at the Amtrak station and he's looking at several white professional men walking by him who he presumes is his new physician, his new expert physician. And the brilliant Joe Seneca, who does a great job in this film. Sorry. My next door neighbor here at the office has a dog in her edit room. The brilliant Joe Seneca playing Dr. Thompson. Mr. Galvin? And just the look on Newman's face. Dr. His, Thompson. His face doesn't fall per se, uh, but he registers the information <laughs> that is just a further blow to what he and America was aware of as a flaw in Boston society at the time. Good of you to meet me. Well, I'm, I'm glad you could come. My pleasure. And, and Newman uses the blinking here brilliantly to indicate his character's processing, well, real-time processing. I, uh, I have some errands to run, and then I thought we'd spend the evening. That's what I planned on then doing. Then I, I want you to, uh, to go out to the home and see the girl. From what I've read, Mr. Galvin, you have a very good case. Yes, I think so. I think so. So this is just another great scene where, again, the character making progress is now scrambling to try to find a solution. And he then moves to this great confrontation with Frank the Galvin. brilliant Julie Bavasso. I represent Deborah and Kay in the case against St. Catherine Labore. 
I told the guy I didn't want to talk to anybody. Just take a second. Deborah Ann Kay, you know what I'm talking about. Do you know who our uh, chief witness is? No. It's David Gruber. He's the uh, assistant chief anesthesiologist at Mass Commonwealth. He says that your doctors, Towler and Marks, put my client in a hospital for life. We can prove that. So what we don't know is why. I mean, what went on in there, in the operating room? I mean, something happened, you know what it was. They gave her the wrong anesthetic. Now, something happened. I mean, it was a distraction. What, the telephone? What? I have your doctor's testimony. What do you need me for? Because we need someone who was in the operating room. We're going to win the case. <laughs> this is a meeting of two no equals here. It's just simply... As characters and as actors. Mm-hmm. Julie Bavasso in real life was a very that. beloved acting teacher and wonderful actor in her own right who is giving as good as she's taking here with Newman. Subpoena you, you know. I can put you up there on a stand. And ask me what? <laughs> I mean, she deflates Galvin's... Well, I didn't do it, mister. But who are you protecting? Who says I'm protecting what, anyone? doctors? What do, you, what do you owe them? I don't owe them a goddamn thing. Then why don't you testify for them? You know, you're a very pushy fellow. You think I'm pushy now? Wait till I get you up there on a stand. Well, maybe you just better do that then. You know, you guys are all the same. You don't care who you hurt. What you care about is a dollar. You're a bunch of whores. You've got no loyalty, no nothing. You're a bunch of whores. And this is the most extreme close-up that we have of Paul Newman in the entire movie after she slams the door in his face. She's the character who completes another piece of the puzzle for Galvin, which is that he is still a whore. He's just cloaked himself in the mantle of doing the right thing, but he's still doing it for the wrong reasons. Um, He's not really in pursuit of the justice. He's in pursuit of, as he says to the client's husband, you're going to get, what, five, six times. He's still thinking in terms of the monetary reward. And the irony in the screenplay is they are rewarded beyond even that, but only when the Galvin character does the right thing, not in quotes, but in real life. And the next sort of pivotal acting scene for Newman is after the the doctor is indicated in his preparation with the Mickey character, the Jack Warden character, that he's kind of a disaster for them, that he doesn't know what a a code blue is, that he doesn't know that Towler wrote the book on anesthesia. Um... Galvin shows up at Laura's apartment in this amazingly filmed scene. We're going to lose. Deflated, defeated, before it's even started. See, it's my fault. There must be something you can do. That's not the point. It's over. What's so genius here is the body language that Newman uses is so resigned, so pathetic. He's shuffling in, he's searching for some sympathies. He's, he kind of glances over his shoulder at her to see if it's working. And what we don't yet know is that she's rooting for him to win because that's her only hope for any kind of salvation for herself. She is engaged in a treachery. And the way this is framed is genius. Over Galvin's shoulder, but behind him, 
you see the Charlotte Rampling character. And because of the framing, she appears small. She appears almost like a conscience or a fairy godmother standing. She's not standing on his shoulder, but it's kind of has the same effect where she's the one telling him to get his shit together. Stop being so defeatist. Stop being such a sad sack. Dust yourself off. Get in there and figure it out. She's so small in the cutaway. And then when we cut back to Galvin, his framing is so pointedly different than hers. The camera's slightly tilted up at him. It gives him a more looming presence in the scene. You want me to tell you it's your fault. Okay, it probably is. But what are you going to do about it? I wanted to talk to you. I thought maybe... You maybe could get some sympathy. You came to the wrong place. And what's brilliant here is I'm in a lot of these scenes that I think are so pivotal, I'm realizing that I'm playing the other actor's dialogue because the way Lumet frames this scene, it's the it's the effect that that character's dialogue has on Galvin that Newman is embodying in these cutaways, which are often nonverbal. And his way with words is incredible, as we will see towards the end of the film. I do. You say, you say you're going to lose. Is it my fault? Listen, the damn case doesn't start before tomorrow, and already it's over for you. It is over. You want to be a failure? Then do it someplace else. I can't invest in failure, Frank, anymore. I can't. And her look there is so brilliant as a button, and Galvin sort of has to run to the bathroom and panic. He can't handle it. Um, and a great little button on this scene is what Newman himself came up with and suggested to Lumet, which is she goes to the door, tries to kind of comfort him. He says, you know, don't pressure me, don't pressure me. Then it cuts to him sitting in a chair watching her sleep. So they didn't have, they didn't have a romantic entanglement after this scene. He sat up all night drinking and smoking, watching her, but her message got through. And this was a scene that Lumet and Newman came up with and wondered if they would need, but decided to keep. And I think that it's, it's good that they did because it does create a segue to the start of the trial the next morning and a brilliant, brilliant camera shot here. Uh, we know that Frank is still a little rusty and he, you can look at Newman's face and see that he's preoccupied with the idea of whether he's going to do this well or not. And this is it. If you've ever had kind of one of these moments professionally where there's a huge complicated thing that's going on and there's a certain day you show up. I mean, this happens a lot in our business, the TV business where you have a shoot day looming and the day before you are just a wreck because so many things can and will go wrong and you're kind of aware that there will be a time later in the day, the following day, when it will all be over for better or for worse. There's something about that deliciously terrifying moment that is both addicting and horrifying as you live through it. And one of the ways that they brilliantly indicate this for Galvin in this scene at the start of the trial is Bart Kowiak's camera follows Galvin's hand that has a little notepad with his opening remarks to the jury bullet pointed out. And as Galvin, Galvin rises, the camera follows his hand with this pad across the uh, table and he leaves it on the table before he 
really begins talking to the jury. And it's a great little tell, a great little use of props to tell us something about the character. I know that you have thought, how can I be pure? How can, uh, how can I be impartial without being cold? How can I be um, merciful and still be just? I know that and, you, you know, Galvin does a great job in his opening summation, but the trial, and again, when you're dealing with a courtroom thriller such as we are, we have a lot of, you know, uh, not half the movie, but just about half the movie takes place in the courtroom and is about the things that transpire in the courtroom and the the beats of that, as Lumet says in his commentary track, that you have to you have to be very sparing with with what you use in terms of not the tricks of setting up these courtroom films, but the beats that that the viewer wants and expects. You know, you've got to have a gotcha moment on the stand. You've got to have the moment where our hero attorney feels that all is lost. You've got to have the moment where the evil opposing counsel seems to have slam dunked the case. You've got to have a moment where the judge interjects something. You've got to navigate all this stuff and you have to choreograph it. And you have to have restraint, Lumet says, to not use all your ammunition in the very first scene. As an example, related to the podcast, I've noticed sometimes with first-time guests, they do all this preparation, and they come on the podcast, and in the first 10 minutes of discussion, they try to make all the important points they saved up about the film, rather than sort of trusting that in the process of the conversation, we're going to get to all those things. I think the same thing is true for a director in a scene like this, where... You need to be judicious how often you deploy James Mason or Paul Newman or Jack Warden cutaways or all of these types of things. And also what's important is that as Newman gets into this hilarious moment where the judge is questioning Galvin's own witness, uh, there's a bit of the old Newman fire here. Your Honor. Yes, Mr. Galvin. I may be permitted to question my own witness in my own way. I'd just like to get to the point, Mr. Galvin. I am getting Mr. to Mr. Galvin, I believe I have the right to ask the witness a direct question. Now, let's not waste these people's time. Now, right there is such a great cutaway that I was just referring to. He cuts away to Jack Warden as Mickey sitting at the uh, table. And <laughs> the look on his face is like, oh, shit, the judge now hates us. And that's a courtroom drama beat. But the, here's a moment where Laura calling him out in that previous scene, telling him to grow a pair, pays off. Because he is feeling himself here. He is defending this, this moment, although it, it again, in this brilliant construction of the Mammoth screenplay, just as he takes a step forward, there are two steps back. Today, fella? He's now upbraided on your way out. by he the judge. kicked you out in that Lillibridge case. In his chamber. Now, this is it today. I'm an attorney. I'm on trial before the bar representing my client. And again, judge is eating in what Kira and I talked about when you have someone eating and other people not eating in a scene. It's such a specific dramatic device. All I want on this trial was a fair shake. Okay? Push me into court five days early. 
I lose my star witness, and I can't get a continuance, and I don't care. I'm going up there, I'm going to try it, I'm going to let the jury decide. You know, they told me about you. Said you're a hard ass, you're a defendant's judge. Well, I don't care. I said to hell with it, to hell with it. Look, Galvin, many years ago. Come on. Hey, don't give me that shit about you being a lawyer, too. I know about you. You couldn't hack it as a lawyer. You were a bag man for the boys downtown, and you still are. I know about you. Are you done? You're damn right I'm done. I'm going to ask for a mistrial. I'm going to request that you disqualify yourself from sitting on this case. I'm going to take a transcript of the trial to the Judicial Conduct Board and ask that they impeach your ass. You aren't going to get a mistrial, boy. We're going back there this afternoon and we're going to try this case to the end. Now you get out of here before I call a bailiff and have you thrown in jail. And this is the great moment of Karen I mentioned where he, he slams the door and then he looks back. He's like, oh, shit, this is not a winning strategy. And he does the fingernail thing again. And then just hoping to make an exit, he runs into Deborah and Kay's sister. <laughs> you have other tactics, don't you? What does it mean? I mean, you uh, have other tactics? Oh, yeah. They present their case and then I get a chance and we just cross-examine. Are we going to win? I'm, I mean, you, you have other tactics, though. Yeah. He just walks away. <laughs> he says, yeah, and he just walks away. But that is a great scene. It's such a greatly constructed scene. And Newman is incredible with language. I mean, it's so obvious to say that acting is the recitation of dialogue by a performer. But the flow of those words that we just heard, mixed with the emotion that the Galvin character has in this heated moment with the judge, he's standing up for himself. Newman's command of that language is so absolute. And it's so, it's so in character, even as it's a Paul Newman moment in quotes. And those things, I think, are so interestingly blurred for us when we, uh, when we watch a performance by an actor like this. Like, what we're watching is not just this brilliant David Mamet screenplay put on screen by Sidney Lumet and his production team and acted by these actors. Part of this is, by this point, 1982, we are watching Paul Newman. We're watching someone we've known for 25, 30 years on screen. And he's bringing that to it. We are bringing that to it. That's part of this alchemy that occurs with late career, mid career movie stars. It's part of what Harrison Ford is bringing to the screen in Blade Runner 2049. It's our emotional connection, connection not just to the character of Rick Deckard, but it's our emotional connection to this idea of Harrison Ford, which we also know isn't necessarily connected to the real person. But with someone like Harrison Ford, someone like Paul Newman, we kind of do know that they are like their on-screen personas more often than not. And the ways that they're not are sort of fascinatingly also tied up in their on-screen persona. And that's what's incredible. And having had this conflict, there's another great moment here for the Galvin character where he basically now figures he's got nothing to gain, everything to lose. And he hectors this witness. Yes. Listen, the to, listen to the interrupting. Yes. The notation stopped four and a half minutes after Deborah Ann Kay's well, heart we stopped. Four and a half minutes after her heart stopped. Well, as I say, and we they resumed more. three minutes later. We had rather more on our mind than later. taking notes. We were trying to restore her heartbeat. Uh, what happened in those three minutes? 
Well, we were trying to restore I mean, our heart. happened in those Jack on the code yeah, blue, we were administering heartbeat. I mean, almost nine minutes to restore a heartbeat, which caused massive irreversible brain damage. Mr. Galvin, you're not allowing the witness to answer. Now, what's genius about this scene is that Galvin has nothing to, to lose here. He feels he's already lost, so he's got to try and make his points to the jury any way he can. And Dr. Towler, who he's ostensibly cross-examining here, is just a means for him to shout out the things he wants the jury to, to know, even though it's not really his place to do that. And I think what's cool about that is you don't often get to see acting where you have purposeful interruption. They're both interrupting each other, talking over each other. Well, that has to be choreographed to be realistic. You know, if you think about how it happens in real life, it's very hard to act that. But you have two people here doing a brilliant job of acting it. And then you have another one of these courtroom beats here, which is uh, the shoe has dropped here with Towler's uh, dropping of the fact that she was anemic. And so her brain was getting less blood and um, this is where it's kind of over for our protagonist. And then you have this great moment with cases. There are no other cases. This is the Mickey case. Mickey and Frank. Mickey's rubbing no his shoulders. No cases. This is the case. And Bart Kowiak's camera is again there are no other cases. This is the case. coming up from the floor and showing us Galvin, who's hunched over, and because of this angle, we can see not only Galvin hunched over, but we can see into Frank, uh, we can see into Mickey's eyes as he is sort of aware that, well, if there are no other cases and this is the case, my friend, we're pretty screwed. After that, we have some exposition scenes, but what's fascinating about this scene here is, I think, the generosity of spirit represented guys are a bunch of whores. Loyalty. Don't care who you hurt. He's got no loyalty. What are so the nurses? They're recounting what Julie Bavasso said. Everybody who was in the operating room is testifying. Like, again, in a courtroom thriller, you need this moment of What's like, oh, now we found the kernel of the case that we've been missing. And this is that moment. And Admitting nurse? It could be our hero moment. It could be the moment <sighs> for Frank doing? Galvin, who's our hero. She took down a history. She signed it here, KC, Cape and Costello. The history? Yeah. How old are you? How many children do you have? What's great about this unexpected moment here is there are three things written on the form. Galvin reads out two. He grabs his coat. He hands the form to Mickey. And it's Mickey who will tell us what Galvin just figured out. How old are you? How many children did you have? When did you last eat? And that's the whole point of the case here. That's the thing that he's been lacking. And then he uses the same type of sleazy trickeration that we saw him use at the beginning of the film to get the Julie Bavasso nurse character to tell him where Caitlin Costello resides. He's now in a chapel of all places. Before he was in a funeral home, now he's in a chapel at a hospital where the nurse works, and he's going to use that same degree of trickeration to get the information that he requires from this brilliant character played by the brilliant Julie Bavasso. She stops to pray on her way out. Oh, Miss Rooney, uh, 
understand what you're doing, and I just wanted you to know that it's okay. What are you talking about? Well, about Kate and Costello. I mean, I understand, and I don't blame you for shielding her. I spoke to her today. What are you talking about? I talked to her this morning. No, she told me. She told you? I just saw her. In New York? You saw Kat in New York? That's the information he needed. Is she in town? And he leaves. Now, this scene is played so brilliantly on Julie Bavasso's face, not Paul Newman's face. And again, this is part of the generosity of spirit that I wanted to mention earlier in the scene where he gives the sheet to Mickey and it's Jack Warden's character who tells us this critical piece of information. Like, that's a hero moment. Our hero is the guy that figured it out on the paper that Caitlin Costello asked the important question of the patient. But instead of giving it to Paul Newman, it's so brilliantly constructed to the viewer, like let us follow the paper and then reveal it through, through the Mickey character. I think that's brilliant. And there's some other additional scenes here where he's chasing down Caitlin Costello, which are, which are wonderful acting scenes, but a lot of them, I mean, I'm not going to discount them. I just don't want to spend, you know, two hours talking about this here. So I'm skipping around a bit to get to, you know, the big acting scenes in the film. And a lot of this exposition that goes on here is about the Laura character and them trying to find Caitlin Costello and finding her and having Newman uh, figure out through his phone bill how to find out where she lives and get her phone number. Again, using the tricks that he was using in his ambulance chasing to actually get him something. And this is another scene where he does the fingernail thing on the tooth. Oh, yes, I know that. It's in our files. Let me see, that's the Manhattan Health Center. No, at Chelsea Child Care, okay? Look, call me Monday, hey? I'm late for work. And what's great here, he, he's calling her immediately after getting her number, and he's repeating, Chelsea Child Care, Chelsea Child Care, Chelsea Child Care, wordlessly so that he remembers it, so he knows how to go there and find her. And it's, an, again, a one-sided phone call where his desperation and fear is different than it was when he felt he was losing the case. Now the desperation and the fear is he's so close to this breakthrough and the introduction of the great Lindsay Krauss and her brilliant performance here. Another great Newman scene. It's going to sound like the sound of a street because in this most pivotal moment where the Mickey character is going to tell Frank Galvin that Laura is a spy from Concanon's office, it's done wordlessly. It's shot from across the street and on the third or fourth floor of a building, and we don't hear anything, but we see the physical indication of Mickey talking to Frank and the effect that the news has on Galvin. And this goes into probably one of the most infamous scenes in the film, which is the slap or punch that Galvin gives the Laura character at their designated meeting spot in this bar restaurant in New York City and the look on both of their faces is fascinating to plumb as you watch this scene again the slap or the punch obviously gets all of the commentary but what's going on on her face what's going on on his face is really where this scene is being played out and it's different than you would expect she meets his gaze after the punch she doesn't avoid it he, 
There are moments fleeting across both of their faces that are so complicated. She's ashamed. He's ashamed. He's disgusted. He's hurt. She's hurt. And pointedly in this very next scene on the shuttle where they're flying back to Boston. Galvin's not drinking. I think very pointedly. And he's deflated because they're concerned that their case has been compromised. And... Mickey says, you know, you could get a mistrial, but Frank doesn't want a mistrial. That's not what he's playing for. Now, general anesthetic. Ideally, a patient should refrain from taking nourishment up to nine hours prior to induction of general anesthetic. Does that sound familiar? Yes, I wrote it. This scene's fascinating because methodology and practice Newman is deliberately playing this board boredly. Textbook on the subject. Is that correct? I'm He's setting a trap. Yes, it is. And you wrote it? Yes. Page. Right there. Four, four. Page. The use of these breaths, this is part of the characterization. It's part of the genius of the acting. He's setting a trap here for Towler and for Kincannon. He's walking them through the minutia of if someone ate an hour before admittance and you gave them this general anesthetic, it would be criminal. He gets them to admit all this. And he does it because he's, he appears to be just playing out the trial. He's, he's lost. He has nothing to gain here. And he's bored. So everyone else is bored and not really paying attention to what he's really doing, which is baiting the trap. If a patient has taken nourishment within one hour prior to inducement, general anesthetic should be avoided at all costs because of the grave risk the patient will aspirate food particles into his mask. Is that what uh, happened to Deborah Ann Kay? She aspirated food particles into her mask. She threw up in her mask, yes. But she hadn't eaten one hour before admission. If she had eaten uh, an hour before being admitted to the hospital, then the inducement of a general anesthetic uh, of the kind that you gave her would have been negligent? Negligent? Yes, it would have been criminal, but such was not the case. And right there, Galvin has set the trap, he's sprung the trap, and Towler has put his paw delicately right on the plate that Galvin wants him to put it on. And it's so expertly done by sort of playing the opposite of what the Galvin character is really going through, which is he's not bored, he's not disinterested, he's not running out the string or playing the, playing the uh, beats out here. He's actually fully engaged, but in his engagement, he's playing the opposite of that as an actor, and that makes it so, uh, so just jaunty almost to watch what goes on here. And when he brings in, um, when he brings in the Lindsay Krauss character, um, this is another, you know, courtroom thriller moment. You have the big surprise that catches the bad guys unaware. Uh, and he delicately examines her so that the information is not elicited by yes. the Galvin character. 
And he does this by walking over to the other and table. The and he's one, asking these questions near Kincannon and Tower. Standing for one hour. I did. A single hour. Again, these are all one hour, a single hour. He's Yes. He's dropping more peanut butter on his trap here for Kincannon and Towler to be attracted to. Thank you. And he, he's, uh, he's willing to Go appear that he has no case here. He's willing to not be the one to pull out the smoking gun. He's going to let Kincannon do it, which, of course, he, he, he willingly does. And all of this leads up to, of course, Newman's greatest scene, his most famous scene, which is his summation uh, scene for the trial. And rightfully so, it's the what we would call the Academy Award nomination scene. I played the entirety of it in uh, the episode about the verdict. I'm not going to necessarily play the whole thing here, except to say that it is perfectly the summation also not of just the case that we've followed, but of the arc of the Galvin character. What's brilliant is after he makes this speech, in a way, it doesn't really matter for him what happens. Of course, it matters to Deborah Ann Kay. It matters to his clients. But this this moment for the Galvin character is the moment to get to say this in this court. What is right? Tell us what is true. To talk about losing his faith, acting as if we have faith. I mean, there is no justice. And just the way this is filmed again in a set, it's not a real courtroom. And because it's not a real courtroom, we can have the camera higher than we would in a real camera, in a a real courtroom. And because we can have the camera higher, it can then move down and in and follow the Galvin character through his summation. And it's a brilliant piece of acting, which, as I said in the episode, Newman did twice. And it's the only time Lumet says Not some book. that he ever saw an actor do lawyers. it better the second time than the first time. Not a, a marble statue. And Newman makes this language sing just like he does all the language in Mamet's script, including the tough lines where... It is, in fact, a fervent and frightened prayer. It's lofty. It's purple prose almost. But Galvin can pull it off. Newman can pull it off. A lesser actor couldn't. And it is the perfect summation for the Galvin character. And, of course, we, we get the triumphant moment of victory that, you know, you have to get in a courtroom thriller. And a brilliant camera movement swoops down. Even Galvin can't believe it. And Jack Warden literally looks up and says, thank you, God, as the jurors are, um, are, are, are asking if they can give more money. And there's a great scene after the verdict where he sees Laura and she gives him a steely look. He gives her a look and he starts to walk off, but then he stops and he turns as if he would go to her, but she's gone. And that brilliantly sets up this final scene, which we also talked about in terms of the funny kind of controversy over Roger Ebert's contention that Galvin was still drinking and that Galvin finds that victory when washed down with booze tastes just as bitter as defeat. Brilliant use of this phone. 
and he goes to answer it, but he doesn't. And he's got such an interesting look on his face, and he grabs this paper coffee cup of what's clearly a hot liquid and takes a drink. And we don't know whether he's got some whiskey in there or not, but he is content. And on these klaxon-like rings, the film cuts right to black. And we go to the end credits. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant film. Incredible acting, not only from Paul Newman, but from everyone in this wonderful cast. I could easily do an episode talking about the James Mason scenes, the Jack Warden scenes, the Lindsey Krauss scenes, the Joe Seneca scenes, anyone you wanted to pick. They're all worthy. And I hope that if you enjoyed my episode with Kier on the verdict, that you enjoyed this walkthrough, brief though it may have been at one hour and 33 minutes, of 40 or so key scenes by Paul Newman in The Verdict. Thank you again for listening. Be back soon. <laughs>